Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. Love your new building. See the obligatory bare brick wall that every church needs to have. Good. Well done. Tick. Um, and the live feed. Claim your miracle now. Always wanted to say that. Um, yeah, not feeling too groggy, actually. Limited myself to just two drinks last night. Apologies to Americans. We do drink here. It's, it's part of the kingdom. Coming on earth. When you live in Cape Town as well, you know, this is, uh, you, can't, you can't really put too many alcohol bands on because we've got such beautiful vineyards, so we see it as worship. <laughs> I, I, I come here today feeling like a little toddler um, with loads going on in my head and feeling quite unable to know how to kind of verbalize it all and just worrying I might just kind of go, ah, or whatever, or hopefully not wet myself, but... <laughs> I, I, I was sitting in Heathrow, as Pete said, this morning, just trying to work out what to say and not say. <laughs> Probably ruined that already. But, um, and then in worship, as you know, super spiritual preachers always say, God always kind of hijacked my preach. Oh, I hate it when he does that, because um, I hear him so clearly. And so there are a couple of things that I think we'll try and weave in, and yeah, try not to be 55 minutes. Um, but before I start, um, there's, I just had a prophetic word for the lady in, with the glasses in the black top and the gold earrings just there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Can I embarrass you? Would you stand up? Is that all right? This is, I hope this is really encouraging. Um, I just, I just um, when, when, we were, when people were praying for people earlier, um, I just um, saw you and felt like the Lord say, you need to tell her that she's a little bee, like a little... Um, Bumblebee. Um, and I've just been watching a bee movie with my um, toddler. And I don't know if this is true, but in the movie, like when bees disappear, the environment around them really suffers and actually can't go on. And I feel like he's saying to you, you bring health to the environment around you. And a vital, significant thing, not just feel good vibes, but actually you bring a, a really weighty, gravitas in a good way to the environment around you. And I don't know if you felt under-acknowledged or under-supported or anything, but he's saying he sees that you are vital for where he's planted you. And I don't, I don't know, this is just going out on a limb, I don't know if business or social enterprise is a thing that you're either involved in or kind of thinking about or dreaming of, but I felt like a real confirmation to just follow those pokes as and when. Um, so he sees you and he really affirms the culture, health-bringing nature of all you are. I hope that's encouraging. <sighs> you're like, you're glad that's out of the way, I'm glad that's out of the way. And yet at the same time, God can use anything, right? This is not that we need to stretch ourselves the whole time. We need to keep going into deeper, deeper places with the Lord. That's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today. Um, but before I do, um, I just wanted to say, if you are new to KXC, and I don't, you know, I don't really have the authority to say this, but, um, <laughs> but of all the places I've been around the world, honestly, it's one of the most safe and beautiful communities I've been part of. And that automatically makes it seem like I've been to loads of places. I've been to like three different places. <laughs> um, but this is like up there. And so if you're here kind of looking in, like, do join the, what is it, the wire folding team and the other thing. By the way, I was so excited when he was sharing uh, the, the, the level of reception he got. What was his name, the guy? 
the level of reception he got, I thought this is going to be a good morning. If they're like cheering, packing chairs away, like you can pretty much say anything. So yeah, I, I come to you from Cape Town, South Africa. I was born in London and have been in Cape Town 13 years. I moved there when I was 23, straight out of university. Uh, I was convinced I was going to be the next big thing in kids' TV. I was working for Blue Peter. Uh, God thankfully hijacked that. Uh, well, I was at the bottom of the ladder. Who am I kidding? I was just researching, but you know. Um, and broke my heart for um, a demographic of young people in Manenberg. Um, Manenberg shouldn't exist. Manenberg's a community created by the white supremacist uh, 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 spirit of the apartheid government in the 1960s in Manenberg that forcibly removed people of color and bulldozed their houses at the foot of Table Mountain and removed them to dormitory-style housing 20 kilometers out of town. Manenberg should not exist. It was founded on white supremacy. And the collective trauma of having your turf bulldozed and being powerless to pr pr uh, uh, protect your family and being surgically and methodically mixed uh, up and so removed from your community. And so living in fear and isolation, living with deep anger. That collective trauma is what we see every day in Manenberg at the moment. Because... Who knows that if you have had your turf violated or bulldozed in the past, then my goodness, you will give everything you can to make sure that your turf is protected now. And so when Manenberg is uh, uh, known, um, sadly, for being the heart of gangland in Cape Town, Cape Town has, I think, we're the ninth in the world for homicides per 100,000 people, and that really boils down to what's going on in Manenberg. Just to give you a, an idea of the gang pandemic we see, in Manenberg, you've got the hard-living gang, the American gang, the F-the-world kids, the luxury kids, the clever kids, the KGB, which stands for Kakakhlevelika bastards uh, in Afrikaans. You can probably work out what that means. The Dachakoppa, the DMX, the Taliban, the Mongols, the firm. That's just off the top of my head. It's on every street corner. And they're fighting, they're turf fighting for um, the rights to deal heroin uh, that's Unger Street Heroin Turk, which is crystal meth, and Mandrax, which is a tranquilizer with psychotic side effects that used to be used in medicine until they realized the negative effect on the brain. Uh, and then during apartheid, it was actually flooded through the townships by the apartheid government to render those who might protest against the white supremacist uh, government uh, verging on comatose. So this is where we call home. It shouldn't exist. It's in real pain at the moment. We're in a really grisly gang war at the moment. Uh, two of the hard-living gang leaders were shot uh, the week before last. So Tuesday, I just went out to get milk one evening with a friend from the US who's visiting. And actually, as we were walking back from the shop, we're told, run, they're shooting down here. A bullet's just gone down the road. That's where we're at at the moment. I'm carrying the trauma as I can. As I'm telling that story, I can feel it's still there. But we also raise a hallelujah in the presence of our enemies, and we uh, believe that the prospect of the righteous is joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because I've seen so many people, so many activists burn out and get depressed and angry and bitter and deconstruct without any sense of renovation, and it leads to dystopia, and I will not go there. So for the last five weeks or so, 
you guys have been looking at streams in the wasteland. Is that right? Streams in the desert. Something like that? Yeah, a couple of nods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pete Hughes is nodding, so he's been listening. Great. Um, and from what I could work out, you've been looking at things like um, that we are all thirsty for something. Right? All of us. We're all thirsty for something. So will we be filled with the Holy Spirit? And what does that look like? And that leads you, as you are filled to overflowing, to live in confidence of God, to a life that is more fully dependent on his goodness and provision. And that then, as you begin to take risks and step out into the depths, leads you into uh, uh, developing a prophetic imagination, not only for your own life or your own family, but for the city around you. That is the personal prophetic, the words of destiny and encouragement and direction, like I tried to do just now, that we hope will fuel the systemic prophetic move of a church that aims not necessarily to bring solutions to the world, Problems, but to live as a prophetic sign that another world is coming. Amen? And so as we develop our prophetic imagination, we begin to actually get more clarity on our unique contribution in the world and for the world. Everything Jesus ever did was personal, face-to-face, that person in the moment, and yet systemic in nature as well. Think of the, the lady who had been bleeding for 12 years who got to tell, quote, her whole truth. If you were ceremonially unclean, isolated, thrown on the edges and the margins of society, had given everything you had to doctors and lost all your money and got worse... In a patriarchal society where you weren't seen, how many of us know that, that that is a whole lot of truth she got to tell to Jesus that day? And who was waiting in the wings? Jairus, the powerful man, the synagogue leader, who had never, ever, I imagine, been forced to wait by anybody. And for her. And so Jesus, in the moment, he's personally ministering to her. But there's a systemic Thing that he's doing that is saying to society, we need to be welcoming and including people such as this. And so that's what we're going after in Manenberg. Yes, we're going after how to help guys come out of gangs and drugs. We see young men uh, detox from heroin through the power of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, detoxing, praying in tongues. Uh, And we see many, many more, to be quite honest, not. Uh, One of the things that I've been thinking about more and more is how do we measure success? One of my core wounds that I realized actually over the uh, uh, COVID pandemic was the sense of feeling like a complete and utter failure. What have you got to show for your life? The numbers are small. The pace is slow. And yet God is saying, what will you show me from your life? Do you see the different nuance? The accuser accuses and the Lord invites in. We talk about call-out culture in the world. Use the wrong word. You're not woke enough. You're this, un-PC, this or whatever. But Jesus is always call-in. The kingdom is a call-in culture where he said to the disciples, those unschooled, ordinary men, zealots, fishermen, Tax collectors, the whole shebang, Republicans, Democrats, Tory, Labour, everything else we can imagine. He said, come, follow me. And he's saying the same today. The kingdom is a call-in culture. And we're not in the world for God. We are in God for the world. Your life, if you know Jesus and have committed to follow him, 
is hidden now with Christ in God for the world. If you think you're um, in the world for God, that will be the mindset that generates lots of busy ministry activity, ticking boxes and trying to work your way up a ladder that doesn't exist because it broke the day grace arrived and Jesus died and rose again. So then what does it look like for God's kingdom to come? It's quite a sort of, um, it's a bit religious jargony, isn't it? Kingdom, God's kingdom, like, uh, yeah, I'm, it's, but it's the thing that Jesus spent most of his time talking about. And it's not an alternative vision, by the way. It is the original vision. Every other sub-kingdom vision that you may have heard or been formed by or fed by culture or marketing, that is the alternative sub-kingdom vision. The original vision is Jesus. The original vision, the kingdom of God is more real than mere physical things. It's all around us. It's just sometimes we need to develop a new way of looking to perceive it. It was one of Jesus' favorite things to talk about. People talk about Mannenberg, and they say, Mannenberg, can anything good come out of Mannenberg? And we remember, didn't they say something like that about Nazareth? And how did that end? We need to develop our kingdom lenses through which we see the world, not as an alternative reality, but as the original cosmic reality. The kingdom of God is what happens in us and through us as we lean into the power and love of God. It's the inbreaking of God's shalom, his peace. In a world with a mental health pandemic, his peace, nothing broken, nothing, nothing missing into the wounds of this world. It's what once caused pain becomes something that now brings joy. Because God can redeem and he'll win with any hand he's given. It restores us broken, tainted people into the likeness of Jesus. And the kingdom of God, as our passage today, will show, you'll see in a minute, there is a passage, I promise. is a river, an ever-deepening river that flows right into the death-creating structures of this desert world. And so this lens also helps some of us who might have been in church for a bit to see things slightly differently. You know the box-ticking thing of being in the world for God? Well, that means that we often think we need, to get, we need to pray so that we can get everybody saved. But what if we need to get everybody saved so that they can pray? Because what if that, actually, communion with God, is our first love that he calls us back to? And so we're not totting up numbers. We're not counting Christians, as Dallas Willard says. We're beginning to weigh them. Will you, with me, commit to putting on a bit of spiritual weight this morning? And we begin to realize that who we are in the kingdom is much more important than what we do, certainly what we might accomplish because, by the way, to try and justify your life through successful endeavors is the exact antithesis of the kingdom. And so if the kingdom of God is primarily about who I am rather than what I do, then repentance looks a lot less like being sorry for things I've done and more like being sorry that I'm the kind of person that would do such things. Do we see that shift? It's subtle, but it's just, yeah. And so we, Sarah, my wife, and I, and now our little daughter, Simtandile, who we adopted 10 months ago. I wish I had a picture. I didn't know how to do that. Um, take it from me. She's really cute. 
and I'm obviously not at all biased, but we, the three of us, live in Manenberg, and we, for the last eight years, Sarah and I have been living with young men coming out of gangs and drugs and lives of violent crime. And in the last eight years, we've had roughly 60 young men come live with us. And now again, we go back to the success question. People go, so what, it, what, what are your success rate then, Pete? <laughs> My heart sinks. <laughs> and we were sitting with a funder one day, Sarah and I, and they said that, and they asked that question. My heart sank because that's really my core wound, as I said, and I desperately trying to do some fancy footwork to be like one person is doing okay. And Sarah just eyeballs this guy, and she goes, oh, no, we're 100% successful. I thought, oh, God, how are we going to get out of this? Especially when money is involved, it gets awkward, you know. And then she goes, well, here's the thing. God never asked us to get anybody off drugs. We can't do that. But what he asked us to do is move into Manenberg, done that, and open our home as a habitation of the Holy Spirit so that young men who knock on our door in tears saying, I'm done with this life now. Can't I come live with you? We open our doors to and we love the best we can and we introduce them to Jesus. And so in that sense, we're being completely faithful. We've done it with every single one who's come to live with us. 100% success rate. See? Your best life now. Um, but then you could ask, okay, so how many of them actually made a commitment to follow Jesus? I'd say well, all of them except three. Okay, well, that's in the, top, that's in the 90s then, 90% or so. And you say, okay, how many of them are still walking with Jesus? I'd say probably about six or seven out of the 60. So, okay, back to 10%. And then really what people sometimes ask is essentially, and they're never saying it, but ultimately what is the cash value of a soul? A grotesque notion, but one that many, many ministries, if I'm honest, when I've traveled around different places, the three different places I've traveled... You see that sometimes, and you see the in intense pressure on ministries to try and come up with some stats out of nothing in order to keep things going. That's a whole other talk. Ezekiel 47, the river of God. I'm sure you're fairly, I'm sure you've read Ezekiel 47 once or twice. Can we, is there a screen it could come up on, or shall I? Probably not going to read it. We'll just look at little, little highlights. So Ezekiel from chapter 40. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament, roughly 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. And from chapter 40, he's actually going through an open vision. And it's some really, really specific details on how worship in the temple should be. And we basically come into this story, or we enter into Ezekiel's open vision, uh, seven chapters in. And if I'm honest, the first six chapters, like 40 to 46, are pretty dull. Like, if you want the highlight, 47 is the one, unless you're really into, like, measurements of temple, tabernacle spaces, etc. And I've offended someone who's like, oh, no, that's really good. I love that. <laughs> and he says this, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, Bloody, bloody, blur, some more details. The main headline there is that water is coming out of the temple. War there is water flowing out of the temple in Ezekiel's vision, okay? 
The water is not flowing out of the king's palace, dripping with prestige and wealth. It's not flowing out of government offices, displaying power and influence. It's not, um, it's not coming out of the marketplace, connecting businesses and networks. The water is flowing from God's house, from a posture of worship and adoration and poverty of spirit. The refreshment that the world so badly needs can only come from the people of God meeting in the house of God. Ephesians 3.10 says it's God's intent that now his manifold wisdom be made known through the church to the authorities in the world. That is us. If you're sitting here thinking, ah, oh, don't really know what to do with my life, well, invade some spiritual darkness with the fact that you are the church and bring your life into some deep, deep meaning. Because so often the church is, I heard this the other day, I thought it was quite great. The church is a little bit like a bad photograph. And we'll see it, we've seen it a lot in the news recently overexposed, underdeveloped, and a, little bl a bit blurry around the edges. Now, I love the church. I've given the last 13 years of my life to try and build the church in a place that other people have said we shouldn't be in. But despite the church's quirks and inadequacies, it is the hope of the world. I mean, was it Augustine who said the church is a whore, but she's my mother? sums it up pretty well. I'm sure someone's going to come up to me and say, actually, it wasn't Augustine. That was... <laughs> the point of this story is that water is flowing out of the temple, and wherever the river of God flows, life grows. Ezekiel isn't alongside the river, looking in, analyzing the river. He's walking through the river. He is led into the river. We don't get to critique and analyze stuff from the banks of the river and go, well, that's not very good. Mm, not, not sure about that. We are called to follow the prophets of God into the river, into the stream of the kingdom, into desert places. And as we do, what we'll see, we'll begin to see ourselves go deeper and deeper and deeper. Ezekiel walked 4,000 cubits. That's about two kilometers. Like he, he, could have turned, he could have turned back at any point. But he discovered that obedience takes us out of our depth. Yeah. Obedience will take you out of your depth. And you might be thinking, oh, I'm feeling kind of out of my depth. Well, brilliant. Good on you. Good for you. Excellent. That's exactly where you're meant to be. Maybe your early days of faith were marked by those sort of easy, kind of lazy, kind of half prayers that then get miraculously answered as God is just coaxing you along into the, into the life of faith and saying, brilliant prayer, completely theologically inaccurate, but I'm going to answer that because I love you. And now maybe, and that's the ankle deep, and it's really easy, kicking around, splashing around. Someone also once said the church is a bit like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. Some people are like, cringe. Others are like, yeah, good point. <laughs> but, but for us in Manenberg, like, we are in the deep end of global inequality. South Africa has the highest gene inefficient in the world, which means that we are the most economically unequal country on earth. And Cape Town itself is the most racially divided city in the most economically unequal country on earth. There is not a lot of time or energy we have for noise, online content. Culture wars. The noise comes from the shallow end, people. But let me tell you something. There's probably a couple of reasons why life might be feeling a little bit harder for you now as you're wading deeper, following the prophet of God into this destiny you're not sure about. Firstly, you're probably just a little bit older. 
That's fine. I've just done my knee. Welcome to middle age. The surgeon said, yeah, you should probably get into swimming, running in a straight line, or cycling. And I said, that's just code for your middle age now, isn't it? <laughs> and then I looked at all his medals from all his ultramarathons on the wall and thought, so you're possibly just in a different life stage than you were when you came to know Jesus. You're just needing to adjust to some more com uh, uh, responsibilities, new demands on your life and time. This will all bring new questions, and old answers will not suffice. You find yourself fatigued by a gospel story, too narrow for the complex and ever-changing world you find yourself in. The shallows, you know, you can lie down, kind of face down in the shallows for a bit, but it's not that fun. First point, maybe you're just a little bit older. I need to come to terms with that, and maybe that needs a prophetic thing. No, it's not. He doesn't hurt you. That's child abuse, remember? But secondly, God is doing a deeper work in you. He's forming your soul. The struggles you've experienced up to now have actually built up pain over the years, which will calcify if you don't bring them to him. Disappointments. My goodness, I live with disappointments. But there's a prophetic vision that we keep marching towards through the river, deeper and deeper. But here's the thing. A surface level, an ankle-deep encounter with Jesus will not sustain you through the complexities of life. And because your only real home is God's heart, and that is found beyond the shallows. And despite what the world tells you about upward mobility, quality of life metrics, grace always flows to the lowest place. Okay, I'm skipping so much here because I'm aware it's 12. Here's the plan. I know that you're all very familiar with the phrase, all things new. Amen. Right? <laughs> I'm sure you're like, oh, not that again. <laughs> but here's the plan. God's chosen way of making all things new of permeating the dry ground of earth with the nourishment of heaven and of bringing forth his river of life into the lowest places is you and me. It's you and me. It's us. We are to prepare the way of the Lord. That is our mandate Talking of mandates, you may have heard of a thing called a seven mountains mandate. Has anyone heard of that? Seven mountains mandate? Okay, if you haven't, good for you. Don't, don't look it up. In short, in short, it's a teaching that says that the way Christians are to make God known is to, to climb the ladders of power in culture. And so, the teaching goes, we must seek to control seven different spheres of society that someone decided are the, the only seven. Media, government, education, economy, religion, family, and the arts. And once Christians have dominion in those spheres, it will usher in a huge end times harvest. Or something. <laughs> but God's told a number, a handful of people that that's what will happen. Not sure what you think? Me too. Actually, you know what I am short, I think. Can you tell? Let's have a little look at what Isaiah says will precede the coming of the Lord. As much as, yeah, don't go there, Pete. <laughs> Isaiah 40. 
three to five. What's the opposite of a mountain? Okay. You're, you're already half there, Kexi. Isaiah 40, three to five. And this is so key to us as we think about the river of God, the kingdom flowing into desert places, grace hitting the lowest places. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. And every mountain made The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all humanity will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the authoritative, prophetic word about the coming of the Lord. And it has much more to do about valleys than it does about mountains. Valleys will be made raised up. So can you think, it's like polishing the friggin' like, like silver on the Titanic, trying to climb a ladder to the highest places of the mountains, when Isaiah's already told us that before the Lord comes, the mountains will be made low anyway. What a waste of your life. How much more prophetic significance for KXC, for the church, for Bridgetown, for Tree of Life, if we would give our lives to raising up the valleys instead? Because grace flows to the lowest place anyway, so if we invade, or rather, that's a better better word, redeem and and do life and and, and locate ourselves in the valleys, that will be the prophetic sign to the the world that that the valleys are going to be raised up before the Lord comes. I'm spitting into the microphone now. And isn't it obvious anyway that kind of coercion and trampling over colleagues and other people in order to get to the top of a mountain to display the humility and character of Jesus (laughs) is utterly conceited? Aside. Rivers spend their entire lives, the entire purpose of a river, along with the nourishment that it brings, is to empty itself into something greater. We brothers and sisters, are in the river and we get to empty ourselves fully. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Glory is God's holiness on display. And it says in Isaiah, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So what might the seven valleys of society be? And I've arbitrarily decided what they are in the same way that the mountains have been decided. Actually, my friend Bob did. Literally, Bob Eckblad, amazing guy. Look up Bob Eckblad, Liberating Fire on Vimeo. Amazing story of a man who was in uh, liberation theology and cooperative like coffee farming in Guatemala, then got blasted by the Holy Spirit in 94, hated it but couldn't deny it, and then bridged the gap between activism and revivalism, which is, I believe, what we want to see coming. And what he suggests the seven valleys could be are this, prisons. Slums, old people homes, psychiatric wards, drug dens, refugee camps, and the homeless. In short, the valleys are places where Jesus' followers are already active, making the, the rough places just a little smoother. But there's so much more for us to imagine, so much more. Can you imagine if we put as much strategy and ambition into infiltrating the seven valleys of society as people do trying to climb the seven mountains? 
Can you imagine the delight of God as his people put first those the world puts last? Can you imagine the breath of the Spirit, the fertile ground for signs and wonders breaking forth in forgotten corners of empire? Can you imagine the harvest of lives of those who previously were far from God kneeling in incredulity and wonder as the glory of the Lord is revealed as they witness the church being what the church was always designed to be? key to all of this is found to go full circle back to John 7. Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. I didn't know anything about that. I had to look it up. (laughs) Three main feasts, okay? First one, Passover, represents the forgiveness of sins. Seven weeks and one day later after that is Pentecost. The visitation of the Holy Spirit. And then after that is the Feast of the Tabernacles, which isn't about visitation at all. It's commemorating the tabernacling of God. The verb to tabernacle. Trying to use that today. (laughs) The tabernacling of God with his people. The dwelling and walking alongside and within his people. And so it seems to me, forgiveness of sins, tick, great. Filled with the Holy Spirit? I hope so. If not, let's do something about it today. And then the settled presence of God in you, that you are a habitation. So that you're not just coming up, coming to church. The visitation mindset is one, turn up to church and kind of beg the Holy Spirit to turn up, which fuels anxiety, performance, religion, and faith as a sort of once-off event. The, the habitation mindset is that I brought the Holy Spirit with me to church, When I came here today, sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? But that's sonship, I believe. And his presence tabernacles with me wherever I go. It's a quiet confidence, it's a peace and an intimate relationship. So, to end, we want to see the river of God flow to the lowest forgotten places of society. We want to be fueled not by analysis on the edges, but by getting out of our depth. And when it feels scary and anxiety-inducing, that is the poverty of spirit that is required to inherit the kingdom of God. And the world will see us orienting our lives to the forgotten. Not the voiceless, because they don't exist. As Arundhati Roy says, it's only preferably silenced and deliberately unheard. But we orient our lives towards them and the world sits up and says, there's glory on that. I don't even know what glory is, but I want it. So here's my question. Are you up for it? Are you up for it? I mean, what else is there? 